and welcome to this month's episode of the Divine Comedians podcast. I'm your host, Paula Wiseman, and today I am lucky enough to be chatting with actor and Irish comedy legend, Ardell O'Hanlon. So, hey, Ardell, it's great to be chatting with you today. Hello, Paula. Yes, a pleasure to be here. Thank you so, so much. So you were born in Carrickmacross in Monaghan. Yeah. Um, so what were your school days like? Were you a fairly kind of outgoing kid or did you just kind of try and keep your head down? Um, I don't know, really. Uh, there's uh, conflicting views on that, actually. <laughs> <laughs> like, I always uh, thought of myself as a very kind of a shy kid. Um, sort of kept myself to myself, but my family insist otherwise. You know, they say I was quite outgoing and uh, that I probably did the talking for myself and my older brother and, you know, that I was uh, a bit of a storyteller and all that as a kid. But... No, I, I kind of remember myself as being quite shy, like very outdoors in terms of football and, and yeah. sport and all that. So I was always out running around playing football with the neighbours. But I don't remember, I don't remember like having a, a really close friend or anything like mm. in primary school. Um, You know, you were always part of a huge gang, like, uh, and, uh, and it was mainly football, like uh, the various types of football that, you know, Gaelic football, soccer and everything else. Um. But I, I remember just being very shy and very watchful and sort of didn't say anything in class, like never opened my mouth in class <laughs> ever, uh, uh, even though, you know, when I knew something and I was dying to express myself, I just didn't. And and I think it was kind of like it's a funny one because, you know, I grew up in it's rural Ireland. It's small town. Yeah. It's the border, which adds an extra little dimension to it in terms of, you know, you're very much encouraged to keep your head down generally. Yeah, you don't you don't say too much or, you know, you 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 know, because you're never quite sure who you're talking to and that kind of thing. So, <laughs> uh, so you know, I, I took that to heart anyway. Yeah. No, I mean, you were one of one of six. So, yeah. I mean, I'd say you would have, you know, you would have struggled to get a word in anyway, if there's six of you. Yeah, that's kind of true, actually. You know, and I was third, you know, and, and I've been I, I actually was thinking about that quite a lot over the last few years because I just. You know, I just ended up doing comedy material on that during the last tour. And so I'd actually researched being a third child quite a lot. And it's, you know, I don't know how much, uh, you know, you can, you can, you, you know, you can, you can take from that. But, but there, there has been a lot of research done and third children definitely get, get the raw end of the stick. <laughs> I mean, my findings, Paula, if you're interested, yeah, include that most uh, Nobel Prize winners in history in all disciplines are firstborn children right which would suggest they have some sort of an advantage in terms of resources and in terms of like education and you know and attention and so on um the vast majority of astronauts are firstborn <laughs> children uh and and this is an interesting one most u.s presidents are firstborn children oh, wow. and there are exceptions and i don't need to tell you you can guess who oh, are the exceptions yeah. you yeah, know yeah, so yeah. the more the recent uh, president donald trump was a third child and that that kind of explains everything <laughs> uh so yeah so 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 yeah it was a pretty noisy household um you know, we were we were a, a big family, kind of, I suppose, like a happy family. I don't know how to, you know, people say, like, was your childhood happy and things like that? I don't really know. I mean, mm. I suppose, yeah, I guess. But you kind of you, you kind of have nothing to compare it to in a way, do you? You know? Yeah, true, true. So you got you ended up you got a degree in communication yeah. studies. So, I mean, what was the plan? Was there a, a kind of grand plan for when you kind of got unleashed onto the world, you know, onto the uh, the working side of things 
Um, no, not really, not really at all. Um, when I left college, I mean, I went straight into comedy, you know, mm. early. Uh, there was no real comedy scene in Ireland at the time. But a few people I went to college with, namely Kevin Gildee and uh, Barry Murphy and Dermot Carmody, who had all done the same course as I did. We just set up a comedy club, um, you know, out of boredom as much as anything else. Uh, sort of the first, I suppose, what you might call alternative comedy club in Ireland. Yeah, yeah. One of the first anyway, uh, just above a pub in the International Bar and uh, in Dublin. And, you know, we, we I don't know why really we did that. We, we, we sort of... <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> it was like, uh, but there was no plan. I mean, there was no, and there was certainly no plan to be a comedian or anything like that. Um, you know, we, I, I was certainly inspired by sort of punk and new wave, mm. and, uh, by dadaism in art, yeah, and things yeah. like that. So it was all very kind of, you know. Not certainly not radical. I mean, there was no real, you know, radical manifesto or anything to <laughs> change the world. It was more, it was just that kind of do-it-yourself ethos, you know, because there was nothing much going on in Ireland. Like, and it was interesting, the course we did, like it was a communications course. Like most of the people went into, in fact, you couldn't say most of the people went into anything. Everyone went into something different. 70 people who graduated with me. And I would say, you know, everyone went into a different field. Some went into advertising, some went into TV production, some went into radio, some went into business. So some people, you know, went into the creative arts like I like I did. And uh, but generally speaking, there was no there was no work. There was a there was a huge recession in Ireland yeah. at the time. Uh, a lot of our, our my friends that would have emigrated um, and we sort of hung about Dublin and there was a bit of a I don't know. There was a bit of an art scene like, you know, there was, you know, every second person seemed to have a guitar case in their hand um, <laughs> and possibly a guitar in the guitar case. Who knows? And then there was a lot of there was a lot of poets. You'd see people reading poetry on the street for yeah. money. Uh, there was a lot of singer songwriter nights in the pubs. Uh, there was a great music scene in Dublin in those days. I mean, like like in the international bar where, where we ended up. Uh, we could only get a Wednesday night because every other night of the week there was some sort of um, a thing on. There was like a jazz band one night, a blues band another night, singer songwriter night another night. Um, you know, so so like there was a lot of bands and a lot of kind of certainly a lot of creativity. You know, uh, and I think we kind of tapped into that a little bit in the absence of anything more practical to do. Yeah, I mean, your dad famously a TD and doctor. So was he kind of saying to you, like, you know, Ardle, what are you doing with your life? <laughs> or was he yeah. fairly was he fairly laid back and just kind of said, right, you do you do what you want to do? No, no, I wouldn't. I wouldn't say. I wouldn't say that. <laughs> uh, they, I think both my parents were very concerned about this this career choice. Yeah. Um, they just couldn't get. I mean, I don't think they just. They couldn't understand it really. I, um, it was it came from nowhere, you know. It came from left field. There was no real tradition of it in our in our house. My mother was it was an act was an actress in college in her university days in Galway, and so she loved theatre and she loved books. And you know, I, I suppose I I inherited some of that some of that mm. kind of you know that kind of the, the, her genes in that respect. Uh, and she did write a little bit as well. You know, uh, I, I, I would say, you know, there was definitely some sort of an artist in her, but like she, she devoted her life to raising children. And um, she was a teacher for a while as well uh, in her younger days. Um, but she always encouraged reading and stuff like that. So I suppose part of her was probably quite 
I, I wouldn't say thrilled about it, but like you know, was 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 curious about it. Uh, I would say, but she like like comedy was sort of a little bit too offbeat for her. I think you know that type of comedy. I'd say mm. at that time anyway. But they've certainly come around to it since. Like I think eventually after maybe thirty years, they. <laughs> It seems to be very generational, doesn't it? You know, a very generational thing, you know, like things that we would be into. Our parents would be like, what are you even watching? What are you doing? This is. Yeah, I know. Yeah, exactly. And like even, you know, when they did come along, like I suppose they would have come along early enough, um, maybe in that first year or two, they would have seen they would have seen it with their own eyes in. And, you know, but they probably saw it like with 12 people in the audience and it been very sloppy and and very under under rehearsed and you know you know and myself and barry and kevin were like we formed a trio after a while and we were always bickering on stage it was like it was ridiculous it was so i mean it was part of the attraction i suppose in a way and part of the part of the whole part of our thing after a while was that we'd be arguing over who's got the props and you know did you not bring the prop for the next sketch and everyone (laughs) You know, that was all happening in real time, you know, in, in front of everyone. So I suppose they just like, you know, because the comedy we were doing at the time, I suppose, was a little bit uh, avant garde, for want of a better description. You know, it it, it was uh, it was very silly, very goofy. You know, we love things like Reeves and Mortimer and stuff like that. Uh, and, and I suppose we would have liked Monty Python and things as well. You know, so we were drawing on various influences. Uh, and of course, like our own literary influences, Flann O'Brien and Beckett and stuff like that as well, which we would have all been reading at the time. Uh, so we were trying, you know, so that's certainly that sort of, we were very attracted to the surreal and uh, the slightly, the, the very silly. I mean, it was mainly silly stuff that we were doing, silly sketches. Yeah. So I mean, Mr. Trellis, I mean, where did, the, where did the name come from for the, for the group? Was it a joint well, decision? It, it it was I think we were all just sitting around firing names out there and I think that was just the one that people sort of responded to and I think it does come from At Swim Two Birds which is the Flann O'Brien novel there was a character in that called Dermot Trellis so I don't I don't think I don't think we were conscious of that it might have been Kevin who 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 suggested that name I'm not 100% sure but I, I'm not sure if it was if it was consciously invoking the character from At Swim Two Birds but you know, it fitted in, it fitted in with the type of thing we were doing. And, and originally the sketch group was called Mr. Trellis, the Mormon. Mm-hmm. Which, and, and again, I, I don't know how that came about. Uh, and then it just got shortened to Mr. Trellis. And I think we, we hung about for about five or six years um, doing our thing. Yeah. There was obviously a very kind of a like-mindedness between the three of you to kind of yes. have that wherewithal to put together this, you know, open what was Ireland's first proper comedy club yeah well yeah but i mean there was no real drive there you know that was kind of like the history books may well record that we opened the comedy <laughs> club but if, if you have to, if you actually study the mechanics of it like it yeah. was three guys you, you know who who went into a pub one day and said hello can we use that room upstairs <laughs> on a wednesday afternoon we didn't have a microphone we didn't have posters we didn't have you know, we, we didn't have anything like we just and we had cardboards with we, cardboard props that we made ourselves, um, you, you know, so it was all very casual. Like, I, I can't stress to you how casual it was. <laughs> and, you know, what what united us more than anything was a sort of a very lazy, fair attitude to everything. Like we all love football and we loved music and we loved cinema and we loved talking shite in pubs you know that was that was what really brought us together 
um, and writing the occasional sketch, like, you know, one sketch every three weeks, maybe, you know, so it was, I mean, it wasn't very organized, um, you know, and I, I mean, like that's for the first two or three years after a while, when you realize, okay, we can actually do this and we're, yeah. we're improving and we are improving and, you know, then you take it more seriously, but certainly for the first few years, it was just a way to pass the time, you know? <laughs> Yeah, I mean, um, like stand-up wise, when you started, it was the three of you. Um, so how did well, it was your the four of us to begin with? It the was four, four of you, of yeah. Dermot was there, and then there yeah, was a few other people. Like there was a sort of a, a a few solo artists and a few other sketch groups who actually joined in in that early part in that year or first year or first two years. You know, so there was a little group, you know, a little scene emerging, and um, and, and, and you know, we all supported each other, I suppose, in one way or another. Yeah. And I mean, obviously, since then, you kind of went solo and did yeah. you, were do, you were doing your own stand up stuff. So, I mean, what was your first solo stand up gig like? I suppose the sketch group, like we always did little chunks, little monologues. So so uh, that could that was I suppose that was stand up or it was maybe character based. So I had a character who was a sort of a caretaker of a community center, for example, <laughs> Um Kevin had an old fogey character who, who reminisced about about the old days, you know, so so we kind of introduced those characters into the sketch show. Uh, and I suppose over time, as we drifted apart creatively, like mm. we, we're still very good friends, thankfully, after all these years. But, you know, as we as we sort of start doing other things ourselves, like the, the chunks of stand up became the bigger part of the sketch show. So it became it basically became three big monologues uh, interspersed with a few little sketches. So I suppose it was a very natural sort of gravitation towards stand up then after that. And, and um, I, I remember like like certainly because I wasn't a natural performer by any means, uh, terribly nervous getting up on stage. And I suppose I took refuge in a sort of um, in a sort of a persona and a character. And, and my character was someone who was very frightened and bewildered. And that became my stand up <laughs> persona. And it worked very well for me, like even though it was even though it wasn't planned. <laughs> It just be, it was just the way I was, you know, it was my natural terror of performing sort of um, I, I, I use that actually as as part of the stand up persona. Uh, and um, it just became a thing. And, and I and, and it just started, it worked, you know, like it's it's yeah, I don't really know. I, um, it just it just sort of worked. And but again, like, you know, there was no real prospects. Like we, you know, we went to Edinburgh once or twice and we took part in competitions, newcomer competitions, and we did well in them. But like, again, like, you know, we saw like in, in England at that time and in, in, in Britain, there was uh, amazing stuff going on. And we were hugely inspired by that, but daunted by it, like, you know, because it just seemed on another level, like it seemed very sophisticated compared to what we were doing. So I suppose we always had that in the back of our minds that like, you know, this is what we're aiming for. We, you know, we could see the possibilities maybe, or, or we could, you know, you, you were very aware of what was happening in the world of comedy through our, through our visits to Edinburgh and the odd visit to London. Mm. Yeah. You hear that from a lot of comedians, you know, they, they suffer from incredible nerves before they go on stage, but as soon as they're on the stage, they're kind of, they're there and they're kind of in the moment. So, I mean, would you, do you still suffer from nerves? Would you say when you're, when you're I wouldn't doing really, no, I wouldn't. I wouldn't. I mean, I'd still suffer from self-doubt. It wouldn't be the same as the kind of, you know, that nervous energy that I would have had first like 20 years. <laughs> uh, it wouldn't really be now. I know I definitely conquered it like maybe, and you know, it's only in the last 
10 or 15 years that I probably got over it to, to a huge degree. But I mean, it was always fine once you're up there, as you yeah. suggest. Like, it's always fine once you're up there. Like, you know, you have the impulse to do it. So that doesn't go away. Um, and even though, and, and you're quite prepared to go through the horrors like before before going on stage. And it used to last for hours in my case where you wouldn't be able to eat. You'd be pacing up and down. You'd be thinking yeah. about the gig all day long. And, and it wasn't a, it, it wasn't a sensible way to live your life or anything. But, you know, once you were up on stage and once you got going and once you delivered the material that you worked on and people responded to it, like it was a great feeling. And it, and it was worthwhile, I would have to say, in the end. It was it was worthwhile. And, you know, you had this tremendous relief after the show, which more than compensated for the, you know, the terror before the show. Uh, you know, because you, you, you want to do it. Like, ultimately, you, you know, you wouldn't be doing it if you didn't want to do it. Yeah. Like, I didn't yeah. have to do it. No one was forcing me to do it, you know. <laughs> yeah, I suppose. And you kind of get that energy from the crowd as well, you know, that they obviously yeah. want, want to see you. Yeah, that's right. And then all the self-doubt, which which just, I think it goes with the territory, really. Mm. Even the most apparently confident people, I think, this do suffer from self-doubt. I think a lot of performers probably do. And and they do need that kind of approval. And they don't want to let people down. It's, it's, yeah. It is interesting. You know, the more you meet people who work in, in these areas, you know, the more you come across this. Um, so, you know, it's a, it's a kind of a, it's a peculiar thing. But uh, <laughs> uh, it never goes away, the self-doubt. Like, you know, but, but. You, you know, you know, from experience that yeah. if you work, if you work on your stuff and you craft it and you, you know, you, you know, it's going to be fine. Like, it, like it is going to be fine. The audience like it, you know, you're good at your job and they, and they like it. So, you know, you'd think that the self-doubt would go away, but it doesn't, it doesn't, it never does. Yeah. And I suppose nine times out of 10 people have paid to see you specifically. So, yeah. So people will no doubt know you best as being Father Dougal Maguire in Father Ted. It's, and it's often said to be one of the greatest and most loved shows in TV history. How did that journey begin? Did you already know Arthur and Graham already? Um, or how did it how did it all start? Well, um, it kind of started back in Ireland. So I, I left Ireland in 1994 to do uh -huh. comedy in, in England, to do stand up. Um, so no real, no real acting experience or acting background or or even ambitions to be an actor. But I had done a, sh you know, amongst the very few things I did before leaving Ireland was a thing called Hamlet and Our Brothers, which was an RT drama, uh, which was, I suppose, before its time, it was a radical reworking of the Hamlet story where Hamlet was a girl. And I played the Ophelia character, who was Owen, who was a right. kind of a gormless character. And it was only a small little role in a very small drama that very few people would have seen. But it was Arthur had seen it, bizarrely. Mm. Arthur, who, who, who doesn't miss anything on TV. I think <laughs> everything that has ever been made on television. So he saw it and it stuck in his head. And uh, so when it came to when, when, it, when Arthur and Graham start writing Father Ted and they, they were doing they did a pilot for Father Ted, I think or they'd written a pilot for Father Ted, that he had, he, Arthur says, anyway, you'd have to ask him just to verify this, uh, that he always had me in mind as, as Dougal. Wow. Based on that tiny little cameo in this, you know, forgotten drama on RTE. So, um, so I was in London maybe about six months and Arthur and Graham had come to see me doing gigs from time to time. I didn't know them well, but I, I was on nodding terms with Arthur. Uh, and I remember going for a few drinks with them afterwards. And that was the first time they ever mentioned to me that they had this part that they thought I might be suitable for. 
Uh, and then it was probably a few months after that that I ended up doing an audition for it. Um, and again, Arthur and Graham were there and they were kind of putting me forward for it. And I think they had convinced quite a lot of people that I was the right man for the job. And then it was a few months later, again, I was at the Edinburgh Festival. I was doing a show uh, there and one of the leading producers came to that show. And it was at that point then that they told me that I had got the part. Um, so, yeah, it was a bit of a rigmarole. I mean, you know, it, it wasn't something that like I was by the time I left Ireland to go to London, like I was so, you know, so carried away almost with my stand up career in London. Yeah. It was going very well. And I wasn't I really wasn't thinking about Arthur and Graham's you know project on on television or anything like that like it was you know if that came if it came about that would have been a bonus i mean you know everything was going very well you know for me at that time in stand-up so i wasn't thinking about anything else yeah i mean nobody could have seen how huge ted got you know it's just it seems that yeah. it's definitely got legs you know yeah no it did <laughs> it, i think it stood the test of time all right yeah yeah no it's very flattering that people like it still and you know that it has you know it's transcended television in a way as well clearly in ireland it's it's uh it's part of you know it's it's seeped into the popular consciousness in a funny way and you know it's regularly name checked in the doll and <laughs> you know, in the, in the, in, you know it's, it's in court you often hear it mentioned you know references to that money was just resting in my account and, you know at protests you see people with the with the signs down with that sort of thing so you know it, it has it has um you know it definitely has legs as you say yeah no it's just crazy so i mean did your stand-up persona so did it influence how you played Dougal, or was he kind of like set in stone already did arthur and graham have him you say right this is what we want and then you kind of did it did you sort of bring anything to him you know no, his mannerisms really know. Things? yeah well i yeah i suppose i did really i mean i i, I think they were flexible enough about it. i think what they were very keen not to do was to do a really obvious stupid character um they wanted something kind of otherworldly you know uh almost like um so you know i didn't consciously bring anything to the dougal character i just remember reading it for them and th them laughing and liking <laughs> what i was doing uh so i suppose what you bring to it like it's largely like you know you're not conscious of it really yeah but you're bringing yeah you are you're bringing your entire comedy experience to date to it and not just your experience performing and your comedy instincts you know which had been honed on the stage for a year a couple, you know a good few years at that mm. stage but you're bringing your whole experience of watching comedy on television so like the kind of things i watched growing up like laurel and hardy like blackadder like um Balti towers and stuff like that so you know uh, you know it became clear to me if not then, certainly not long after I started doing it, that, you know, I was very inspired by Stan Laurel. I was very inspired by Baldrick. I was very inspired by Manuel, Manuel, Manuel what's his name? Manuel in Faulty Manuel, Towers. You yeah. know, those kind of, those kind of sidekick characters, um, you know, who are apparently very stupid, but actually, you know, they're really, they're really there to undermine the main character. <laughs> uh, you know, so, so yeah. So, so I, I suppose you kind of, yeah, you subconsciously kind of, you know, um, you know, you kind of invoke those kind of characters and then you just you just bring to bear, you know, your your instincts like, and, and, and you know, and your face and your and your mannerisms and, mm. you know, your voice and and then you just respond to the material. You know, that's kind of the main thing. It's like 
it's how you interpret it. Like everyone's going to interpret it differently. So, you know, I think they just got lucky with the cast in a way that we gelled together. You know, I think we all brought something to our characters uh, that, you know, other people might have brought something better or something worse or something different, you know, but you, you bring whatever you can to it. And then, you know, in the in the rehearsal room, you, you know, you you then you kind of you kind of embellish stuff a bit. So that's yeah. that's kind of, you know, you know, the, the writers were great in the sense that they had a very clear idea of what they wanted. But, you know, the, uh, within that framework, you know, they were quite open to suggestion and open to anything that improves the script they were on for, you know, and they had a fantastic production team like Hattrick were, were, were one of the and still are probably yeah. one of the preeminent comedy production teams in the UK. Um, and they were pretty much pretty much allowed to do what they want. Channel four were very, you know, flexible in that regard as well. And, you know, so they pretty much let them get on with it and and do whatever they want. And there was a brilliant producer that first year called Jeffrey Perkins, who's mm. one of the who's just one of the great legendary comedy producers that Britain has produced uh, certainly in the 80s and 90s. And he was a, he was a I would call him a sort of a mentor for me personally. He was just yeah. great. He gave me every encouragement. He was a big fan of mine. And, um, you know, when I was unsure of what to do, he would always encourage me to go for it, you know, and and take a chance. So you would do that in rehearsal. You would do it on the recording nights as well in front of the live audience. You would take a chance. You know, you would you would improv something or, you know, just try a line in a different way or do something stupid like physical, you know. Yeah. And um, and if they liked it, they'd keep it in. And if they didn't, <laughs> wouldn't, you know. So it, was, so it was a great experience, you know, particularly for someone like me who wasn't really an actor and, and didn't, yeah. you know, hadn't really had very little, if, if, if any, experience. So it was a brilliant learning curve and, and to work with great people. And, you know, we always had great guest actors uh, as well. And, you know, it, you know, I, I, I loved all that, that side of it. And because as a stand up, you end up on your own a lot of the time, on your own, working on your own, tearing your hair out, <laughs> trying to come up with jokes and stuff like that. So to be working in a fun, you know, collaborative exercise like that is just brilliant. Yeah. I mean, that was the beauty of Dougal. You know, he didn't even have to speak. Even with a look, you just just be cracking up at this you know totally vacant yeah. Yeah. <laughs> there was stuff going on but we never really yeah. knew yeah no absolutely I never really knew <laughs> uh, no I always I, I, I've, I've said this before like you know I, I used to you know because I really didn't want him to be like a stupid Irish man you know which which is, was, is obviously a trope particularly in England and in, in British culture you know for the last couple of hundred years mm. you know, a stupid Irish man so you know, we, we we were always like very conscious that we were playing with those stereotypes and we didn't want to reinforce them in any way. Um, but to, we wanted to kind of have fun with them. Um, so I used to kind of like, you, you know, I used to take it very seriously in, in terms of on the night, try and stay very focused yeah. uh, on the recording nights, particularly. And, you know, uh, and I used to always think of myself as more a dog than a than a human. You know what I mean? Like, so, so it wasn't stupidity. It was just, it was canine sort yeah. of logic or, you know, it was like, it was like the loyalty of a dog, the trust of a dog, the the good fun of a dog, the, you know, the good companionship that a dog brings. So, you know, that's, that's kind of what, that there's like, I like to think there's that quality in Dougal that, <laughs> that you know, He's he's a beloved pet, uh, but, but he can be very frustrating as well for poor Ted. Yeah, I mean, you could see there was a, a very it seemed like a very natural connection between you and Dermot. 
on screen. Um, I mean, so had you met Dermot, Frank or Pauline before beforehand or was it literally you were all kind of brought together? Well, you know, Ireland's a pretty small country. And like yeah, the, like yeah. The, like the, the comedy community in Ireland is even smaller. So, yeah, I suppose I would have met them all at some stage. Uh, couldn't say I knew any of them. Pauline, I probably knew better than the others because I'd done a radio thing with her yeah. a couple of years before Father Ted. Um, Dermot, I'd only met once on a children's TV show once where we were both guests. Mm. Uh, <laughs> but I couldn't say I knew him. And Frank... Frank went to school with my father, <laughs> but because Ireland's such a ridiculously small country, but I didn't know him. I had never met him, um, but I'd watched him growing up as I'd watched Dermot growing up as well. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so, you know, and then and then when when they decided on both Dermot and myself separately, they brought us together then for sort of another. It wasn't really an audition because at this stage we'd both been cast, I think, yeah. but it was to just see if we gel and you know, all the rest. And um, we got together. And so that was the first time we really got together and read it together. And it just seemed to work. You know, I don't think Dermot, Dermot hadn't overthought it either. You know, a bit, a bit like me, he wasn't coming from an acting background. You yeah. know, he was very much coming from a comedy thing. And, um, you know, I suppose we just relied on our wits and our instincts and and didn't take it too seriously. Yeah, I mean, Frank was a proper actor, wasn't he? <laughs> like, you know. Yeah, Frank Frank was a proper actor. And Pauline was a great actor as yeah, well. Like, yeah, Pauline, Pauline was, I'd seen her in plays as well, and she was great, and Frank was great. And, you know, um, so they brought that acting sort of ballast to it. And then, you know, all the guest actors came in with their thing as well. Now, we used a lot of com- comedians as well in, in the guest roles, which was, yeah. which was great, because I knew most of those guys. They were from my generation, and... and uh, you know, I'd worked with them a lot. So that was always, it was always great to see who, who they'd pick every week, who, who cast in the guest roles. And, you know, and uh, as any fan of Father Ted knows, the guest roles, like there's some very memorable ones, Graham Norton, yes. uh, Michael Redmond playing Father Stone, Jim Norton playing Bishop Brennan. You know, so it was, so it was just great. It, that was that was one of the best parts of it was who, who, who do we, who's our victim this week? <laughs> Yeah, I mean, looking back on it, you know, you kind of see uh, Joe Rooney and Tommy yeah. Tiernan and, right. you know, Jason it was a Byrne. who's yeah. who of uh, Ireland, you yeah. know, comedy talent, really. Barry Murphy, Kevin Gildee, yeah, they, yeah. All, they all, all, everyone did a bit, yeah. Oh, yeah, poor Kevin as Father Cave on the, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. on the flight into terror. Oh, man. Yeah, yeah. Poor guy, poor guy. Um, So, I mean, did you become like a, I don't know, like a, a family unit? Did you learn a lot? from the others acting um, wise uh, learn not what not to do <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> no um yeah we became very close i suppose yeah. you know you can't you can't but you know uh it was just great fun um so but like there was no real yeah there was that we were i think we were all in the same boat like yeah. sitcom was was very new to all of us really yeah. like uh and you know, I was the only one living in Britain at the time. The others were all over. So it was very much a holiday camp thing for them. <laughs> um, so it, it just became a big bunch of Irish people in London. Uh, so it, so you, you can imagine what that was like. And then the recording nights, everyone had family and friends over. So they became just great nights, great nights out for people. So it was a very memorable time, really. Very, you know, I've, I've nothing but fond memories of the time. Uh, and it would never seem like hardship or anything. Mm. It's not like, like you, you know, you do dramas and, you know, you're on set all day long and, you know, you're doing things out of sequence and, you know, you're working very, very long hours sometimes. And, you know, and, and it can be quite taxing, but sitcom is not like that. It's a, mm. it's a 
just it is the perfect way of working you know you you do gentle rehearsals for five days of the week and then you have a you have a wonderful night on on the recording night you know where you put it all together it's just a great way of working yeah so i mean what what memories do you have do you have any kind of specific memories of filming the series um i mean i came to two of the episode filmings the it was the over 75 wow. the over 75s football match um, yeah. And also the very final one, and I've got this vivid memory of um, of Dermot doing this sh- the shaft dance. Oh yeah! And I remember they made him do it like four times. And That's was right. like, yeah, yeah, yeah. They kept making him do it over and over again. Yeah. Um, and also I've got mem- uh, vivid memories of Eddie Bannon dressed as Mrs. Doyle as well for the for the final <laughs> uh, for the final filming. <laughs> Just kind of worrying um but what sort of memories do you have it must have all kind of happened very quickly well i mean i i i suppose i suppose just com- coming from stand-up it was just it's just really the the working with the group was just was just great and all the lunches i remember i lunch you know <laughs> I, it's probably my favorite word in the english language so you know i remember that um and then having the, you know a couple of drinks after the, after rehearsal and you know it's I mean the memories kind of blur in, into each other like like I have very fond memories of working on location in County Clare yes for the most yeah. part down down in the Burren and all the people we met there and you know you you can picture the scene there like we 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 sort of requisitioned a local hotel in Ennis Diamond the Falls Hotel and we were very well looked after there and you had this big English crew predominantly an English crew some Irish crew and uh, all the different actors and we're all holed up in this hotel and you know so so that becomes a you know a, just a it's just a great atmosphere and you know again it's a it's a kind of a party really <laughs> <laughs> yeah I mean even like the the song for Europe episode it's just become, you know, like this. It's like an anthem, <laughs> almost. You yeah, know, my my yeah. lovely horse and the video, obviously yeah. with you and uh, you and Dermot in your sparkly jackets yeah. and stuff. It's just, um, yeah, just all so magical. Yeah. No, I mean, you know, I uh, like if you asked me a different day, I'd remember a different scene. Or yeah. A different thing we filmed, or a different day we filmed, or a different guest actor. But I mean, it's ultimately it's all about people. Any of these things are, you know. Mm. So, you know, what you're enjoying in the moment is the company of the people you're with. You know, you've, you've already read the script numerous times. So, you know, you've, you've had your laugh at that, uh, if you know what I mean. And then, you know, when it actually comes down to the mechanics of it, like it's the it's the little bits in between filming that you remember, you know, the, the I don't know, the, the company, really, I suppose. Yeah, I suppose it's you can only kind of gauge it when you're in the in the studio and filming in front of a, a live audience, you know, yeah. and getting that that feedback from the people watching it i suppose it's the only way of gauging yeah what yeah, you're doing you, you, exactly you don't know and certainly that first couple of you know the first series like we didn't have a clue what to expect <laughs> i don't think anyone did really um and even on the night when people are laughing you think well yeah but like you know they're just why 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 are they laughing you don't you're not quite sure and then it's it's only when you see it all put together a few months later that you kind of go okay right now i see yes and it's and it seemed to work and yeah that's the thing i suppose if you're filming you're just filming little bits you know when you're doing stuff on location you're obviously not going to know what the end product is going to look like yeah yeah that's right yeah you really you really you really don't i mean you get a good sense of it in the studio you know when when it's all put together you know you 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 kind of you know you, and you definitely know what you're trying to achieve in each scene but it isn't until you see it all together 
but but even then like you still don't know that it's going to become yeah a, a cultural phenomenon you know, you know you certainly don't expect that and that we're still going to be talking about it 25 years later you know so that's that's something you couldn't you know you couldn't imagine in your yeah. dreams, really yeah um so i mean you've probably asked been asked this dozens of times um but do you have a favorite scene from the from the series um well again that, that would just change from day to day yeah, like yeah. Uh, you know um what's your current one <laughs> my current one uh it's kind of like a line like you know you might, I might be talking to my wife in the house and you know she might just quote a line or something <laughs> uh i remember fargo boyle saying to he felt very guilty i think and he said to, he was telling his sheep don't look at me don't look at me <laughs> and i don't know the other night i my hair was in a terrible way and i i think i said that to my wife don't look at me don't look at me you know so it's sort of these lines come out of nowhere sometimes you know uh that you just remember like a ridiculous line or something i mean you know i i suppose i love the video for the euro song i mean just filming yeah. that was that was very improvised and you know i suppose it's it's a little bit of ego I, some of the improvised moments you quite like um you know you you, you know you kind of met, remember them quite well uh that was that was good uh just yeah no just <laughs> <laughs> sorry i'm putting you on the spot <laughs> yeah no i mean i i like I, I i love it all i remember it i remember it all quite well but um, I mean, there's so much of it, isn't there? I mean, I'd, ah, yeah, I'd say it'd be yeah. so difficult to say, oh, this just this one I know, particular exactly, scene. Yeah. And saying it out of context is kind of ridiculous as well, because like, you know, there would have been so much going on around it at the time as well. So it's very hard to say. It's very hard. It's impossible to say. Yeah. In fact, it wouldn't be fair. It'd be like saying, which is which is your favorite child? You know, it's, <laughs> it's, not, it's just not right. It's just not. It's a, it's 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 not right. Put me on the spot like that. Yeah. So, which is your favorite child? <laughs> um, Macaulay Culkin in oh. Home Alone. <laughs> so, um, so did you end up nicking any? Well, I say nicking, but did you end up keeping any props from the set that no, we want to talk, that you want to to talk about? This question, Paul. Exactly. I'm not sure if I want to talk about it because I don't want to um, I don't incriminate. Want to yeah. Incriminate myself, number one, or yeah. encourage people to. You know, uh, no, no. The one, the one thing I did take uh, is, and it's a tiny little thing. Yeah. Uh, well, I no, actually, I took a number of things. Uh, like first of all, I took all <laughs> oh the spare, God. all the spare dog collars. I, right. I brought all them home, um, but I gave them away over the years. I used to sign them and give them charities and stuff like that. Yeah. I took as many tank tops as I could get my hands on. But again, I gave all them away over the years. I have the during the Elvis episode. Sorry, during the. Um, talent contest episode three stages of elvis i'm not sure but either way um i was dressed we myself sorry father dougal father ted and father jack all dressed as <laughs> early elvis in the leather jumpsuit i still have that leather jumpsuit <laughs> uh, that's gathering mold at the moment in my attic um i could never figure out quite what to do with that i'm just waiting for the right <laughs> the right home for that um the, the my most treasured possession from the father ted set is the little painting that father stone did of himself and father ted it was a tiny little painting that was uh, above the mantelpiece yeah yeah in subsequent series so on the last day i just nicked that i don't think i, <laughs> that I just 
took it. It's all right. We won't tell anybody. So that that is the only thing that I have like on my wall, if you like. So does the jumpsuit still fit, or have you, um, <laughs> just, have you very not? personal, Paul? <laughs> I, haven't, I haven't tried it on in a few years. Oh, let's put it that maybe that maybe that's something you could you could do in that you know. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I've just still got this vivid memory of uh, of Father Jack with a on the for the Elvis thing with holding the hamburger. Oh yeah. yeah. <laughs> And I mean, it's it's become such a cult thing. You know, Ted has just become this cult thing with, uh, you know, catchphrases. Obviously, you were saying earlier, like, you know, careful now and all these little phrases, even like uh, Mrs. Doyle and, uh, you know, go on, go on, go on. Yeah, yeah. yeah. But um, I mean, how long did it take for you to realise how big Ted had gotten? Um, I suppose it wasn't really until after the second series. I mean, I knew after the first series that, it had got traction mm. and that in certain quarters it was highly regarded. I don't think it really took off in Ireland until after the second series. I remember the reviews for the first series in Ireland weren't great. Yeah. People didn't quite get it um, or they were wary of it to begin with. And then it was after the second series. I just think it kind of hit its groove and, you know, people, you know, the whole country sort of tuned in. Uh, so it was probably it was probably around then and you know by then it was picking up awards I think even after the first series it was certainly been nominated for the comedy awards and things like that yeah after the second series it was probably been nominated for BAFTAs and stuff like that so you know like yeah it just gathered momentum and certainly by the third series then third and final series it had got quite a large following and like for channel four it had you know record viewing figures I Mm. think certainly like really good viewing figures you, you, you know I mean, we always saw, even then, like we still saw it as a kind of a culty comedy, you know, it was it, like it wasn't a BBC mainstream comedy. It was, you know, it like we thought its destiny was to remain an obscure yeah. sort of late night, typical Channel 4 sort of offbeat comedy. But for whatever reason, it just it just had that mainstream appeal. You know, it was very likable. I think it was very colorful, um, you know, and the characters were kind of larger than life. But, you know, you could relate to them on one level, certainly. You know? <laughs> Uh, and you know i suppose irish people got a slightly different thing from it than maybe english people did but i think the english you know love it in in a similar way but you know i think it, 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 the irish like really kind of you know have a kind of an ownership to it in, in a sense the irish audience you know really yeah. really get it you know in a, in a in a special way yeah no, i was just remembering uh dougal's he-man duvet <laughs> oh yeah you know, and uh, you always seem to be in an, uh, an island football top. Yeah. At yeah, various yeah. stages of the. Uh... Yeah. Yeah. I think that was, yeah. Yeah. He was just very boyish, you know? Yeah. He was like doggish and boyish and slightly otherworldly. They were the kind of notes that I always tried to play. With yeah. I don't know. He had a bit of a sort of childish. Yeah. Very loosely, you know, very childish yeah, quality no, to him. Very innocent. I, I, yeah, innocent, you're naive. You know, I always thought like that's better than stupid. You know, just oh, yeah. like you know, out like I mean, I know he's stupid. There's no getting away from it. But <laughs> like you know, it's it's it is that it's just tapping into that uh, naivety was 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 the key thing. I think. Yeah, I mean, so talk about the the very last episode. Um, I mean, do you think Ted ended at the right time? Do you think it kind of it could have gone on, or do you think it? And obviously, with the the absolutely shocking passing of Dermot, 
I was I'd, I'd gone to the filming of the very last episode right, yeah. and I got home the next morning and I was like oh my god that was so amazing and my dad was like did you hear the news you know and and then he told me about Dermot and I just I couldn't believe it so I mean even that, like for me I mean the shock for the the rest of you must have been you know yeah, incredible it was pretty shocking all right yeah yeah no it was it was um i mean i've talked i've talked about it before m m many times i mean it was it was uh it was pretty devastating on a personal level but like yeah. you know um yeah it was it was unexpected as well it was you know it was it was bizarre bizarre you know that, that something like this would happen uh on such a you know when when we had just gone out on such a high yeah um everyone thrilled to finish the third series the third and final series i mean yeah you know, everyone yeah everyone was very clear that this was was going to be the final series mm. uh the writers particularly were adamant that they had gone as far as they could with the characters um mind you that didn't stop them trying to write a musical many <laughs> oh, years later mm -hmm. yes let's, yes let's not go there um i'm joking uh but yeah, so it it was uh, it was just it was it was surreal, you know. It was kind of it was kind of surreal timing. Um, you know, we'd all plans, you know, plans for the future. We were all yeah. looking forward to what was next in our careers and so on. And Dermot uh, had loads of ideas and you know loads of things in the pipeline. And you know he was um, he had the world ahead of him, uh, and a, and he left a young family and yeah, you know his partner Fiona and everything. Yeah, it was it was just uh, it was just you know shocking. Yeah, it was just so crazy to see how how energetic he was in that final episode. Mm. You know, I was saying earlier about doing the shaft dance, and <laughs> I just you know it just makes me laugh every time I think of him doing it. Um, yeah. But you know, yeah. to, to just think yeah. that it was it ah. all happened so quickly is just yeah. it's well, crazy. I suppose he, 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 had, he had obviously health issues that we weren't yeah. really aware of, you know, and um, he possibly shouldn't have been doing the shaft dance over and <laughs> over again. But, uh, there you go, you know. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, what do you think it is about Ted that makes people love it so much? I mean, you know, you you put Channel 4 on of an evening and there's there's always an episode on. Um, and as I said, people are quoting lines and people watch the episodes. You know, you can watch the episodes yeah. continuously. Um, I mean, what do you think it is about the series that people love so much? Yeah, I, I, I don't really know, to be honest with you. Um I think it's got a timeless quality. Yeah. I think that's helped by the fact that it's on a remote island that, you know, probably hasn't changed in a hundred years. Um, you know, it probably looks like that now today if you went to an island like that, you know. So, you know, you sort of created this fictional island that's is sort of like outside time. Uh, yeah, yeah. In a, in a sort of a parallel universe. So you have that. Um, the fact that the priests as well, so even the... <laughs> fashions don't change that much <laughs> over the decades uh and i think it's like it has a real innocent quality to it even though it can be pretty satirical in places particularly about the church mm. um, and you know it can have a it can have a fairly you know you know the occasional vicious swipe it's very friendly it's very it's like it, it appeals to all ages you know it's just really likable and i think there's a real vulnerability about the three of them you know and and mrs doyle like you know they're all lost souls you know uh so people warm to the characters i think um so even though it's quite surreal in places you still you still you know you 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 have a lot of empathy for the characters and i think that's the key thing really yeah i like to you think know. that they're all still there on uh, craggy island still there. And... they're all you know father ted's still hustling away you know 
the money's still still resting in his account. Money's still resting in his account. He's still he's still you know he's still coping with adversity. He's yeah. Still, you know. Um, still battling with Rugged Island. Still being sabotaged by <laughs> Google. Uh, you know. Um, yeah. No. Yeah. And then you know you can't take away from the craft either. Like the writers are exceptionally good. Oh writers, yeah. You know. Incredible. And, and that, that's. That's a, that's important to note. Like you know, they're they're students of comedy. They they're they're comedy writers to the core of their being. You know, so so that so the their attention to detail is is incredible. Um, you know, I can certainly vouch for that. Uh, and their approach to the craft of, of 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 sitcom writing is is probably second to none. You know, so so and they were hugely inspired by shows like Seinfeld, shows like The Simpsons, yeah, uh, and stuff like that. So you know it's got a, quite a few dimensions to it, you know, more than, more than perhaps meets the eye sometimes, you know, it's got a, it's got a great visual quality to it. A lot of, you know, a lot of kind of visual jokes thrown in there. Um, you know, just, I just think it's a very well crafted comedy um, ultimately. Yeah. I mean, they had a bit of a track record, didn't they? You know, uh, obviously black books was, was huge uh, with Dylan Moran and uh, Bill Bailey. Uh, and then they did fast show inventing Ted and Ralph, for the fast show again who became mm-hmm. quite big characters so they had a a good you know they've got a good track record with yeah, no, no, comedy absolutely, concerns absolutely you know and they, they um they, they, yeah no they had uh they had, they had um a show called paris as well with alexis yeah Sell. with alexis Sell, yeah 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 no they were great and they'd written for smith and jones the last smith and jones i remember they used to write for that sketches for that and they've written for they wrote for alan partridge as well in they contributed to some of his stuff. So yeah, they've they've you know they've they've been around. <laughs> um so you were also in the hugely popular Death in Paradise a yes. few years ago. We absolutely loved that. Um so were you out there for long periods of time? How did it work with, with filming and things? Did your family go with you? Yeah, so you would be out for maybe up to six months of the year. Oh wow! I, I would I did I did four summers, believe it or not, uh, on Death in Paradise, and it, it would be sort of from April to September, typically, and my family would probably come out for a month in the middle yeah. of all of that. So that would be the only time I'd see them. But like even even by the end, like they didn't come out. <laughs> uh, <laughs> now I was only I was I was doing a much shorter stint the last time because I left halfway through that last series that I did. So so but they just they, like. Even they were sick of it, and they were just holidaymakers, you know. So <laughs> it, it was it was it was great, but it was you know it was like you couldn't sustain it year after year after year. It was, you know, it was it was like a big wrench from home. Really, was the main thing. But it was great. Like I, I, I it was such a li- life changing experience mm. in many ways. You know, it was a very different lifestyle, and um, it was it was great to be part of it. Yeah, I mean, what was the heat like? Was it as hot as it looked? Oh, the heat was very hot, and it was uh, <laughs> more than that. It was humid. It was it was like so. It was around thirty thirty five degrees morning, noon, and night. But oh, it was man. it was the humidity was a hundred percent all the time. <laughs> so you were always wet. You know, even like you would have to take off your clothes off, all your clothes off, nearly between <laughs> between each take. Like never mind between each scene. You know, you were you you you, you would get that wet that quickly, and. Um, you know, so you have to dry yourself off with hair dryers and, <laughs> and ice yourself down. So, like, the logistics of it were quite tricky. Um, 
you know, it's hard to believe they've done 10 series out there, but I suppose they have it down to a fine art. But uh, it was, um, yeah, no, it was, it was, it was very, it was, it was never less than very engaging and, and, and interesting quite demanding as well yeah yeah i mean all the actors that have played the the detective role they've all ended up kind of wearing suits <laughs> you know suits and ties and shirts and things yeah. and you're kind of like oh my god you know you must be absolutely roasting they've all ended up shells of the former selves <laughs> yeah ben miller was in like you know full full suit for, <laughs> for his yeah, episode he was. So. yeah 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 no absolutely um he did the first two series yeah um, and you know he 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 has spoken a lot about it as well just about about how how demanding it was physically you know yeah um and uh, you know the heat is is really oppressive you know and and it, and it's hard to convey that because it 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 looks great and you know um it it seems churlish or something to even to even mention it uh but it was just a factor you know that you had to deal with and you had to learn how to deal with it fairly quickly um but uh, it was it was absolutely fine, you know. Once once you got used to it, you know. But sometimes, like you know, particularly the scenes we used to do in the police station, and a yeah. lot of the scenes were done in the police station, and 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 they were they were they tended to be the less interesting scenes because they were the times like we would just recap, you know, we would just we would just regurgitate the sort of information that we had to date. Do you know what I mean? It was like. You know, we have four suspects and each of them had a motive and then you'd have to go through each of the suspects and their motives, you know. So it was kind of the scenes kind of, ra- you know, the, 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 you know, the blurred into into each other in a way. So they were the most tricky scenes, but the police station was the most demanding environment to film in. So it was like a furnace in there, like it was unbelievably hot and there was no air conditioning and no way. <laughs> there was really no way of cooling down in there. And, you know, you'd be doing those scenes and you would have to know them so well because yeah many of your organs would shut down during the day like literally <laughs> for self-preservation reasons you know so your heart would stop for maybe an hour and then you know your lungs would stop working and you know your kidneys and everything else so and your brain most of all would stop yeah, after yeah, a while yeah. like it would literally be melting like it would be just overheated and you know like the way your fan comes on in your laptop when it's been <laughs> over- overheating for too long you could kind of hear that fan whirring in your brain <laughs> after a while and you had to be able to kind of spout those lines almost in your sleep yeah do you know what i mean on autopilot because like in the caribbean as well it's kind of odd like you've only got 12 hours of daylight doesn't matter what time of the year it is uh it's it it's light from six in the morning to six in the evening and that's it so that's when you have to film and you've got to get everything done during the course of that day you can't film at night because of the frogs and everything else (laughs) Uh, uh, so we do very few night scenes, you know, um, uh, cause there's always creatures like just crickets, frogs, <laughs> wild, wild dogs, like uh, wild hens. Like it's, 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 you know, the wildlife is, is remarkable. Uh, so, um, no, it was, it was just an amazing experience, you know? Yeah. I, I mean, sleeping must've been awful, you know, oh, trying to, you wouldn't, you wouldn't sleep. <laughs> you, you literally wouldn't sleep. I mean, the sleeping so you would you would tend to stay in air conditioned villas all right but yeah. so you'd have the air conditioning going full blast you'd have a fan on the ceiling going full blast you'd be covered in a mosquito net you know with the mosquitoes wearing the mosquitoes whirring around you outside the mosquito nets then you've got the cocks crowing all night long the wild hens <laughs> you got the wild dogs savaging the wild hens you can hear all of that god you've got the frogs you know that kind of cacophony that kind of chorus of like the chirp chir- cheeping cheap 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 all night long it's very shrill and very very loud 
So you got that going. You got the crickets and the locusts, you know. So it's uh, it's just incessant the noise. So yeah, and then you got the rum, the crazy rum dreams. <laughs> like, the local rum is a sensational product, and and it's um, it's very cheap as well out there. Uh, the only thing actually that was quite cheap out there was the was the was the local rum. So you know you develop a taste for that after a while, and of course that doesn't help with the with the sleeping either. So yeah, it was. Um, that might explain why you would you could only do three or four series of it. You couldn't you literally physically couldn't do any more than that? I mean, it would be impossible. Yeah. And and I'm asked this a lot, like yeah. why why did you why did you leave it? And you know, like you'd have to experience it to understand why why you would leave such a dream job. Like I mean, for a lot yeah. of people, that would be a dream job. You know, uh, I'm working in the Caribbean for six months of the year, uh, <laughs> and it is on, on one level. Don't get me wrong, and I'm and I'm a pains to point that out as well. Like it's very enjoyable on lots of levels, but it's physically impossible to do it. You know, uh, indefinitely. Yeah, it's such a great cast, though. I, used to, I love watching the, uh, you know, the surprise guests, you know, like a, a well-known actor or an actress would appear as a as a murder suspect. Yeah. You know, you'd, you'd see like Brilliant. Mark Benton turning up and Simon Day turning up and, you know, oh, all these kind of... Yeah, incredible. Simon Simon Callow, you know, like, yes. like legends of, of the stage in, in, in London, you know, or, or up-and-coming actors that you see a couple of years later, you know, winning Oscars or something, you know. So it's, yeah. uh, it's phenomenal, you know. Uh, and again bit like Ted in that respect, you know, that was the big attraction, you know, we're out there on the island year round or whatever, you know, for, for months of the year. And, and these guys are only over for two weeks. So they're on a jolly. Yes. Uh, someone once said to me, it was like a, a competition for equity members, you know, like, you you know, you kind of, you know, you kind of win a competition to go out for two weeks to the Caribbean and do three or four scenes, you know, or pretend to be dead for two weeks, like in the case of the victim. Um, so you know, it was, it, it, you know, but we loved having them out, you know, because it was our island and yeah, we knew yeah. the island inside out. So you kind of show it off to them and bring them to the, you know, on the, on, on the days off, you know, bring them to the, all the, you know, the attractions, the waterfalls and whatnot and the swim with the turtles and all that kind of stuff. So, um, yeah, there were a lot of, there were a lot of compensations, no doubt about it. Yeah. So it's, it obviously uh, trumped getting a part in Holby or. You know, yeah, casually. I think so. yeah, yeah, definitely, <laughs> definitely. But a lot of responsibility, you know, as the main actor, you know, you, yeah. you kind of you're in every scene, so you don't have the fun that everyone else is having in the yeah. in the sense yeah. that, you know, you have very few days off. Uh, you 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 know, so so and then you you know you got to learn these very long monologues as well. You know, you've got the denouement scene, which you know take ten or fifteen minutes. It's, it's pages long. It's like a little mini show, a little Edinburgh show. You know uh, where you're where you're doing the summing up at the end of each episode yeah. so so that's you know so you're always you know you're always very busy but that's a good thing like from an actor's point of view you know you want to be busy i think uh and you want to you know you get to work with all these actors like that was really like that was really brilliant you know like even though the the, the show itself i suppose is not hugely demanding in terms of the you know in, in terms of your range you know what i mean it's not like it's not heavy drama you know you're not yeah. digging deep you know you know you're not doing any of these big heavy emotional scenes a lot of the time um you know so there is this kind of a soapy element to it but like you know that shouldn't really take away from you know the challenge for an actor like you know you have to make hundreds of decisions mm. every day like as how, how you're going to go about something and you know you've only limited time to do it in as well you don't have the luxury of lots of rehearsal or endless retakes you know so you have to be very clear in your own mind as to what you what you what you need to do and um and then you're working with other actors and you're kind of second guessing them and you know you're 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 dovetailing uh, with each other and 
you know, you're watching and listening and all that, all that stuff, which is, which is the pleasure of acting, as most actors will tell you. It's all about, you know, it's all about, you know, that connection with another actor. And then you're working with great directors yeah. who, you know, who, who are bringing all their experience uh, to bear on it. Um, and, you know, so you do, you're learning every day and, you know, it's very, it's very satisfying on, on, on lots of, lots of levels. Yeah, I mean, it's always, I've always seemed to be sort of gearing towards that light bulb moment, you know, when you figured out who'd done it. You were like a, you were like an Irish Miss Marple. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly yeah. No, I know it's, um, but I mean, you know, I, I always figured out who'd done it anyway, just after a few pages reading the script. Um, <laughs> no, it's, uh, yeah, I mean, it's very formulaic, um, but that's part of its cheeky charm. Um, you know, it's. I mean, the big pleasure for for the audience, I think, is the fact that it's a kind of a puzzle um, to be solved. Uh, you know that the world is going to be set to rights by the end of it all. Mm. You know, it's clearly a light drama with its tongue in cheek. Um, and, and I kind of quite enjoyed the the summing up bits, you know, when, when the light yeah. bulb goes goes off and and then you gather up all the suspects <laughs> and you do your big... Uh, you do your big denouement scene. Um, I used to quite enjoy that as a as a kind of a you know, as a stand-up performer, you know, it was, it, it was the only time you were really in control, you know, yourself, like we weren't relying on other actors or, or, or anyone else. Like it was your little moment to shine. And I think from the character's point of view, it was his little moment to shine. You know, the performer in the character quite, quite enjoyed those scenes showing off his, um, his, his powers of deduction. Yeah, I mean, that's the thing as a viewer, you know, with most of these kind of detective things at the beginning, you're kind of think, I know who done it. I know, I know yeah, who done it. Yeah. And it's, you're kind of waiting to find out if you were right, you know, or whether it was something yeah. totally unforeseen as most things tend to be. Yeah, well, writers are going to be pains in the arse. They're, they're always going to find <laughs> wrong foot you and, and uh, really kind of annoy you by the end, or, you know, or sometimes it's two people and that always kills me. You know, come on, that's such a cop <laughs> Um, but uh, I mean, you know, hats off to the writers. It's it's pretty ingenious. They come up with these locker room mysteries, these yeah. ingenious puzzles, week in, week out. And and sometimes, as a as a as an actor or a character, you do feel you're playing second fiddle to the puzzle. You know that it's a bit about the puzzle. Um, of course, the island is a big character as well. I mean, that's another part of the attraction. This show goes out in winter in Britain uh, in January. Yeah. Um, and it's when people start booking their summer holidays, like obviously pre-pandemic and everything. Uh, this was this was uh, um, people had done research on this and that Death in Paradise came out at exactly the right time. And that's why it <laughs> attracted such a huge viewership. People were just coming through Christmas, feeling a bit sorry for themselves, skint. And, um, you know, they always reckon, I think it's the 15th of January is the most depressing day of the year. <laughs> But Death in Paradise comes on. It's on. A little bit of sunshine and a little bit of undemanding drama to uh, to pass the time. And then they go online afterwards and book a holiday. <laughs> I mean, St. Marino has be kind of become like a Jessica Fletcher. You know, you kind of think it's one of these places that like don't live there because you will you will probably end up getting bumped off at some uh, yeah, at yeah, some point in time. High. Yes, yes, <laughs> so you mentioned there about stand up. So you're kind of you're returning to stand up. Never, I never, I never didn't do stand up. You know, yeah. like 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 I always did it. You know, as far as was practical, like between sort of TV jobs, if you like. Um, and then last year, or sorry, 2019, which mm -hmm. was the last year one could go on tour. I went on tour like 
three times that year. So I did yeah. sort of, I did spring of 2019, big tour of the UK. Then I, then I went off to the Caribbean to finish off that <laughs> once and for all. And then autumn of 2019, I came back and did another part of that tour. Yeah. And then spring of 2020, just before the pandemic, I finished that tour. So it was kind of a three-legged tour over a year and a half period. And so I just finished literally on March the 7th, 2020, like four days before we locked down. So it was kind of perfect timing, I suppose. And it was probably the most enjoyable tour I'd ever done. So like, yeah, funny enough, as I got older, I, I enjoyed stand up more and, you know, got more out of it. Yeah. I mean, I suppose a lot of comedians now are kind of looking forward to getting back in front of an of an audience of, mm. in any in any way, shape or form. I mean, how do you think stand up is going to change? Do you think it will change in the sort of the future, the way things have been over the last year? Do you think it's going to change the way stand up works? I don't really know, to be honest with you. Um, I'd be a bit anxious about it, actually. Mm. Uh, um just not quite knowing what to expect i've done a few online gigs uh more to keep my you know to to just sort of keep that part of the yeah the, uh, the brain working um and i enjoyed the experience uh i think it's it just helped to stay sharp and you know to to um yeah i mean if, you know if you didn't have that you probably wouldn't bother writing stuff so like it mm. it, it, it helped and I didn't think I'd like the online stuff, but it worked fine. It was it was good. Yeah, it was, you know, I did a full length online show only last week and I, I really enjoyed it. Surprising myself, actually, how much I enjoyed it and, and how, you know, it was um, like I thought the audience would be really bored after 20 minutes. But they weren't. They were very casual. Like they're sitting at home, I suppose, you know, and they can, they can close the laptop if they want. <laughs> <laughs> you know, um, so I quite enjoyed that. And I am I'm going to do a live show like in a couple of weeks time the first live live show back so i'll i'll, I'll report back to you once okay. i once, once, i look once forward to it yeah um so it must be crazy not having that audience interaction that you would have as a yeah. in a in a venue you know yeah yeah it's funny like it, it's but it, it's but it's it's kind of hard to say from me from where i'm standing because i had toured i'd got a lot of it out of my system yeah like yeah I, yeah like it took me five years probably to write that touring show so you know even though i've been doing it a bit in bits and pieces over the years like I hadn't really planned to tour in this year, you know, or, la or you know, most of last year. Like I, I sort of, I'd done everywhere. I, you know, I played everywhere I wanted to play, and you know, I, I thought that was going to be it for a few years. Mm. And I was going to do other things. So, um, so it's not the it's not the biggest priority in the world for me. Um, but I am very curious as to see, you know, what the landscape's going to be like when we get back out there. Uh, I, I suspect it'll probably go back to normal enough in a few years' time. Yeah, I mean, the world has shifted a little bit, you know, you know, I suppose, I mean, it's shifted in a few ways, like, like, you have a lot of comedians now who have um, come of age on social media. Yeah, uh, who have never done a live gig and may never do a live gig. So mm. that's another factor, which really doesn't apply to me, someone of my generation in any way, really. I mean, I'd be very curious to see what they're doing and everything else. But, you know, they have a way of they can make a living purely from doing comedy on social media and stuff like that. So, so there's that happening. So you wonder whether like the live thing will come back to the same extent mm. or whether that's, or whether that's, you know, whether that's going to be sort of something that, uh, you know, that audience might, might get older. Do you know what I mean? The, the yeah. audience for live comedy might be the audience who went to, who, you know, who've been going to live comedy for the last 10 or 15 years, but they might age. Do you know what I mean? Like it's, it, you know, that's the kind of thing that I'd be kind of interested in seeing where, where, where it all goes. Like, but my experience of the last tour was great. You know, 
audiences were very healthy. They were very good. So whether whether it's just going to suddenly collapse because of the pandemic, I don't know. Um, I really couldn't tell you. Um, but it'll come back in some form. Yeah, I mean, they're trialling gigs now, aren't they? Yeah, up in, they are, uh, yeah. In town at the moment. So, you know, yeah. if, if they can come back, then surely... Yeah. We'll no, have no, a, and then of course tastes change as well, you know. So not only yeah. the meat change, but the tastes change and trends change, and obviously a huge emphasis, rightly so, on diversity and everything. Well, yeah. so you know, it's it, it, it's all up in the air, really. Um, but I I think it it'd be a mistake to worry too much about those sort of things, no matter who you are. Um, you know, to try and second guess what's going on. I think as an artist or, or as a performer, and I and I use that word like kind of lightly slightly ironically but as a comedian um comedy person you you know you, you always just do your you know you do what you can do and you you know you if you do it honestly and you know um put a bit of effort into it and you know rely on your own comedy instincts and everything else like you know you'll find your place like you'll find your niche like you you know you can't you can't overthink these things or worry about them too much or yeah. analyze them too much i mean you know that's always been my approach to comedy from day one is like you go out there you prepare your 20 minutes or your hour or your hour and a half or whatever mm -hmm. it is you're doing and you go out and do it and you know you you know if you're lucky enough you'll have a promoter or, or some sort of management or some somebody you know people you know around you to you know to put the thing on or the you know the comedy promoter or the comedy venue or whoever yeah will will sort out that side of it and and um, you you turn up with with your well-crafted show and you know see what happens you know you'll find your audience and you know and, and it, it might be a small audience it might be a big big audience you know who knows depending on trends fashions and everything else yeah. you can't, can't control that so I think the key thing for anyone in any walk of life, but certainly in this walk of life, is to is to not worry about the things that are beyond your control. <laughs> yeah, yeah, very true. What you do, you know, and, and I do the same thing as I've done every day of my life for the last 40 years is I get up in the morning, I scratch my head and I, and I, and I sit down at the desk and I don't quite know what's going to happen and I hope something will happen. And, um, you know, you try and write something and... <laughs> And eventually, over time, you've got the bones of a show and you go out and do it. So, you know, that's served me OK. I mean, would you be a comedian that I mean, would you would you carry a notebook or have you like would you put notes into your phone? If you get say you get an idea while you're out and about, you might see something. Do you make yeah, do you I, find you I, make notes well, a lot? I actually sit down at my desk a lot like I do, you know, unless I'm traveling or, work, or you know, working on a TV thing or, or whatever. I do. I, I do sit at home like three or four hours a day most days. Uh, with a notebook so you know I, I actually sit down and do it um but yeah if I if I think of something when I'm out and about I will put it down not religiously like not in an annoying way I've seen people over the years like <laughs> you know while you're while you're at the table with them they'll take out a notebook and they'll write down something you said not even something <laughs> really really annoying uh you try and remember things like if you are in the middle of a conversation and you happen to say something very funny you try and remember it and then of course you forget it um, yeah yeah you never write it down it's like trying to write it's like when you wake up in the middle of the night after a dream you say oh i must write that down and of course in the morning it's gone, it's gone. but um yeah no i, I would try and I would try and yeah i try and jot down most of most ideas i have at some stage yeah yeah you did a documentary recently with tommy tiernan about uh swearing yeah. i mean how did that all come about uh was that filmed during the during lockdown yeah, or? yeah that was um yeah, so there's a guy I work with regularly called Jerry Hoban, and we've done documentaries on and off over the years, uh, usually about, I suppose, um, subjects that are that kind of 
explain to ourselves what it is to be Irish. Mm. It was one a few years ago we did on funeral culture, death notices, that sort of thing, and our approach to sort of death and everything else. And it was it was it was a really nice show. And, and, and you know, we'd done a few other things together as well. And so we were we were kind of looking around for something that could be achievable during lockdown. You know, there yeah. were so many yeah. things weren't, you know, you just couldn't do an awful lot of the things you would normally want to do. Um, so we thought a documentary was one thing we could do and we came up with this idea about swearing and the Irish relationship with swearing <laughs> because like everyone you speak to like recognizes that we do have not necessarily a problem with swearing but we have a facility with swearing we enjoy it we love yeah. it it's part of our everyday discourse it's it's a huge part of Irish life and the way we communicate so we were kind of surprised that no one had ever really done anything like this before to try and explain to ourselves why it is we might you know the possible reasons why we might curse and swear so much um so we did a little bit of research on it and we we sort of ran it by rte and they kind of liked the idea and they, they thought it was the kind of thing you could turn around reasonably quickly without compromising you know covid guidelines and everything yeah. else um so we we we, we yeah we we sort of did it just before and after Christmas and uh, it went out a few months ago uh, and it was it was it was just great to do something you know what I mean mm -hmm. like so many people in our business and comedy and drama and music and everything you know just haven't been able to do anything so to be able to do something like that to get your teeth into it and to distract you from the horrors of the pandemic yeah. and everything else it was um it was a project I really really enjoyed and, and I really got my teeth into it you know and uh, loved it and we interviewed great people like Tommy Tiernan and uh, great writers like Lisa McInerney and, you know, the Lord Mayor of Dublin, Hazel Chew. And, you know, we, 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 we just had, you know, we just spoke to great people, a, a GA ref, a referee, <laughs> you know, uh, so to get different takes on it. And, and um, you know, we, we yeah, it was it was OK, I think. Yeah. I mean, even the word feck sort of, you know, became part of vocabulary didn't it after ted you know it did a bit yeah i mean it was always there but i suppose it just became popularized and uh, you know it's a very mild entry-level swear word obviously and uh, yes you know um because we all it's clear obviously not just in ireland everywhere you go that you do need swear words you know it's a very important part of the vocabulary it doesn't make you stupid or coarse or vulgar or anything else it's kind of a necessary part of your 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 um you know your 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 everyday language you know obviously if you if you hurt yourself or something you know <laughs> you, you need some sort of a swear word to turn to um so let's talk a little bit about music now um so have there been any major music loves in your life uh, be it a band or an artist that you've kind of you know, you would have followed through their career or just had this love affair with this particular artist? Um, I mean, there, there's so many. I, I mm. really know where to start. I suppose my my big awakening was like when I was about 15, um, my cousin from England arrived with his punk collection. <laughs> so he introduced me, a very naive 15-year-old boy, to things like Sex Pistols and The Clash and Sham 69. Yeah. Uh, extra specs and these the, the bands from that era kind of late 70s English punk uh, and that sort of began a lifelong I suppose love affair with that sort of genre you know the kind of punk into new wave into mm. in you know um, right up to the right up to the present day so I've always loved that type of music I suppose 
indie guitar bands and you know pixies radiohead all that kind of stuff um always loved that but you know i i, I have very foggyish tastes as well like <laughs> like you know i love van morrison neil young uh you know bob dylan Joni Mitchell yeah you know, I love that era and you know I that was sort of the music I was listening to when you know I discovered punk so so that was music before my time but I inherited it from my older sister or whatever and uh you know that generation but it's it's music I go back to time and time again so you know uh, and then I went through my jazz blues period and you know uh, I love I love all genres I mean it, it, it'd be very very hard to pick one uh to pick one band or one mm. artist uh, because it literally changes from day to day. It's yeah, like yeah. Favorite books, favorite anything. You know, the last guy I discovered was Max Rickster, who's amazing. And you know, that was last weekend. Basically, I finally came around to Max Rickster. You know, uh, Richter. Um, so yeah, so it's it's it's, it's uh, you know always discovering new stuff. I love country music as well. <laughs> Absolutely, <laughs> from where I come come from in the border region. Uh, so yeah. Yeah, I mean, that's the thing, I suppose, having older siblings as well, you know, being the third child, there's always yeah. that kind of transition between your older siblings. They're kind of like, you know, letting you listen to their records and yeah, it's a good way of finding yeah. artists that your older I, siblings like. Yeah, I wasn't really like, like, you know, it was it was probably only in my sort of late 20s, 30s where I really got into music, you know, like yeah. in, a, in a big way where, where, you know, it was background up to that point, really. You know, and then it wasn't until, and I, I suppose meeting key people in your life as well, and people introducing you to music. And I used to go to a lot of live music, like in, mm. in my college days in Dublin. Like there was a, as I, as I think I alluded to earlier, there was a huge music scene in Dublin at that time, and I used to love all those kind of guitar bands in Dublin, Stars of Heaven and and Blue in Heaven, and uh, those Nervous Animals and the Blades above all. You know, there was just a fantastic underground music scene, and it was literally every night. Um. And it was and it was great. And there was a kind of a jazzy blue scene in Dublin, which is underrated, underestimated. And then you would have visiting blues legends like John Lee Hooker and, yeah. and people, Dr. John, the New Orleans boogie woogie piano player. I remember going to see all those visiting artists when they come to Dublin. So we were kind of spoilt in a way in those days for live music. Um, so it's 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 a lifelong journey, as, as, as you know, as everyone knows. And uh, uh, it, it's one of the great pleasures in life, is, is discovering a new band, you know, or, or, you know, and sometimes, you know, you go to Electric Picnic to do your comedy thing and yeah. then you wander around and you, you I think the last Electric Picnic I, I, I was at was probably 2019 and uh, discovered Sons of Kemet, an amazing sort of jazz collective from London, uh, very radical, very political. Um, you know, it's just a tuba and a sax, basically, and two... <laughs> massive drum drum units <laughs> and the sound they make the noise they make is incredible incredibly powerful um but you know when you dig into it it's it's very political as well you know and that's really really exciting uh, and to discover that and then of course you 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 know you might read a review or something then or or, or and then you go down a rabbit hole in apple music you know and, and mm. that's that's how i come by my music or you're watching something on tv on Netflix or, or Amazon Prime and you hear a song and you go, oh, what's that? And and uh, you go and look into it and, you know, you, you that, that's how I find my stuff. Yeah. I mean, that's the beauty of festivals. You know, you can just be wandering past the tent and hear, you know, hear something that's kind of yeah. sounds really great and you're wandering in and it could start, as you say, down this whole rabbit hole of yeah. new music from different yeah. people. 
Yeah, I think at the last electric picnic as well, I think I, I exactly that happened. I wandered past the tent and Brittany Howard was in it and there was only about 50 people there. It was ridiculous. I mean, she's just an incredible presence and voice, um, you know, doing this incredible soulful stuff and uh, uh there was hardly anyone there it was kind of you know it's embarrassing you know the way we get embarrassed like why isn't why isn't there <laughs> for Brittany? Um, yeah no i was there i was actually there i was in the tent that time and i hadn't really i didn't know too much about her i had friends who'd said oh you have to check this woman out she's fantastic and she's there she's got no shoes on and yeah. she's you know just totally going for it and it's just yeah. she's just incredible yeah, I know. I, I, yeah, I'd heard, I think, one song of hers before. And I didn't, like, it, I wasn't there because I was like, think I must go and see Britney Howard. I, yeah, I yeah, yeah. I heard the sound. So, uh, yeah, that's good. I mean, like, I love LCD sound system. That would yeah. probably be the thing I play most. Mm -hmm. It's just, I don't know, it's something I kind of respond to a lot. Um, those kind of uplifting anthems with the tinge of regret. <laughs> I mean, would you write with music on in the background or is it too distracting? Uh, it's a bit too distracting. You know, I've tried a lot. Um, something like Max Richter might work. Yeah. I think uh, uh, it's that minimalism, you know, that kind of classical minimalism. And I used to always love that Steve Reich kind of thing and Philip Glass and people yeah. like that. So, so this is this this could work. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Um, but I, I do get distracted by the music as well you know if you like it like you know you want to listen to the music too so and my brain doesn't work i you know it, 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 well, it doesn't work well at the best of times but certainly I need to do one thing at a time the last gig i was at was um it was just before lockdown as well it was january that year mm -hmm. so it was uh, lancome in vicar street oh cool the, yeah the the kind of irish traditional well it, 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 calling them a traditional band is ridiculous because yeah, they're, yeah. More than that. they're you know they've got a kind of a punk ethos as well and and um they've reinvented irish music really uh, uh and that was extraordinary that was just an extraordinary experience i brought my whole family to it it's one of the few times i just insist that you must come to this <laughs> you know you're not staying in you're not living in this house <laughs> see Lancome with me and they were all blown away by it. I mean, just the sound they create. I mean, there's only four or five of them, but it's incredible layers of sound, you know, drones and and in, I'm pretty sure instruments they've invented themselves, you know, and so they just create this incredible sonic landscape. Yeah. Um, but, you know, they reinterpret like great songs like Wild Rover and stuff like that as well as their own original stuff. So it's it's just really, it's really quite something, you know, and uh uh, that was that was the last the last gig I was at. Yeah, I mean that's the beauty of Vicar Street, though, isn't it? You can you can go there and see a band, but you can also go and see stand up there, yeah. and it's very still very intimate. Yeah, yeah. No, it's it's a brilliant it's a brilliant venue. You know, it's really it's really we're lucky to have it. Um, my my last gig there was in November of 2019, and mm. you know. I hope it's not the last time I ever play there, but it was, uh, it was just so, so great. It was so enjoyable. I don't think I've ever enjoyed a gig in Dublin as much uh, myself, but no, but you get, you, you, like, while I wouldn't listen to music when I'm writing, I, I'd be very inspired by it. And, you know, I take great care in making my little compilations for the intro, you know, for the walk-in music while the yeah. audience are coming into my shows. Like that yeah. would be something that I, I, I curate very carefully. Um, because I think that's part of the experience, you know, you want people to, while they're sitting there waiting for the performer to come on, like, um, you know, you want them to maybe, maybe to introduce them to something they haven't heard before or, yeah. or 
you know, um, just make their ears prick up in some way. Uh, and I find like, you know, it definitely, it definitely feeds into what, what you do in terms of, um, in terms of themes, in terms of what people are singing about and talking about. And, uh, you know, just, I'm always, I'm always struck by like, just the originality, you know, you think every idea has been mined for all yeah. it's worth. Yeah. Of course it hasn't like, you know, everyone has a new take on everything else. So listening to a great songwriter like John Prine or someone like that, who mm. I've been listening to a lot lately since he died actually. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and I saw him in electric picnic donkeys years ago. Uh, doing something and um, he's just a great American songwriter uh, very quirky very humorous very bittersweet and you know it definitely inspires you you know it just you know you in, in terms of the way you might phrase something yourself you know you think there's another way of phrasing it a better way of phrasing it you know or like in terms of a little idea that sparks off an idea that that you're struggling with you know yeah so, and it's only by exposing yourself to that, like to music or to reading or to watching movies or watching dramas or something that you're exposed to these ideas that you, you know, like I've often started something in terms of stand up, and I've ditched it because I thought it's too obvious. It's too prosaic. It's too mm. boring to do this or it's too that. And then you hear someone singing a song about it and you think, <laughs> well, they managed to make it not boring. And, you know. So I can do that. And then you go back to it and you revisit it and you just find a new angle, you know, which which you wouldn't have found if you just shut yourself away in a dark room and never listened to anything or watched anything. Yeah, it's kind of crazy, isn't it? You know, saying about like John Prine there, about how artists seem, a lot of artists seem to become bigger after they pass away. They kind of, they get more of a following um, yeah. after yeah. they after they die, you know, so many examples. Yeah. Yeah, you can imagine how popular Bob Dylan would be when he dies. Oh my goodness! Yeah. Uh, no, it's uh, ah, it's just endlessly brilliant. You know, it's 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 just great. Great to be a human when when you've that going on. Yeah, yeah, very very true. Um, so thank you so much for uh, giving me your time today, Ardell, and chatting with me. It's been fantastic chatting with you. Very welcome. Thank you, Paula. Cheers. 